My name is Andrew Bustamante, and this is Everyday Espionage. Twelve weeks ago, I kicked off an experimental project that I am calling Ground Truth. I wanted to share my personal network of intelligence professionals with you so that you could hear them tell you about how they use espionage in their everyday life. I wanted to let you hear them tell their own stories in their own voice. I'll be honest, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know if you'd be interested. I didn't know if they'd be willing. And I had no idea what to expect taking a mobile recorder with me on a trip around the Middle East and South Asia. But the feedback has been amazing. The flood of emails and social media messages uh, and online reviews have me convinced that you enjoyed hearing from E.D. Jackal. For those of you following me and Everyday Spy on YouTube, thank you for the feedback on my conversation with former KGB deep cover operative Jack Barsky. I have a lot of ground truth still to share, and I don't plan on holding anything back from you. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my next guest and friend, E.D. Viper. So it took a little bit of convincing, but I'm really excited to have you here. So a couple of ground rules that I want to lay. First, we're not going to talk about your real name. We're not going to talk about the real names of anybody in your family. But I'm really excited to have you here, and I want to call you by a code name, E.D. Viper. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I think uh, others would have probably given me a, a less glamorous name, but I'll take, <laughs> I'll take Viper any day. <laughs> so uh, I just kind of wanted to start uh, with a couple of general questions. I think one of the things that impresses me the most is that you actually come from a military background, serving with the Defense Intelligence Agency. And the DIA is one of those agencies that I don't think people hear enough about. And I don't think people understand that the Central Intelligence Agency relies heavily on the Defense Intelligence Agency to be a partner in overall intelligence collection. There's a huge collaboration, and I think it probably is uh, part of the un untold story that it takes both those organizations and the Federal Bureau of Investigation as well. All, all the you know the, the intelligence all the soup, yeah. apps, all the intelligence organizations have to work together to kind of counter some of the threats our nation's facing today. Why do you think? an organization like DIA doesn't get the attention that CIA gets? Do you think it's a Hollywood thing? Do you think it's a press thing? Do you think it's a professionalism thing? Yeah. I think it's a mixture of, of everything. So really, if you look back at the ground roots, um, if you use DIA as an example and thinking about uh, human operations, clandestine operations, really the Department of Defense started clandestine service, which eventually became the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, that's true. And so The Office of Strategic Science. Office of Strategic Science. Right, right. So the the ground roots of the CIA is really a, a military base that expanded to be more effective for the civilian political structure. And then the Department of Defense uh, maintained that capability as well, but maybe a slightly different focus. Mm. No, that's interesting. And we take great pride as CIA officers. We take great pride in our OSS history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is funny because when we look back and we compare ourselves where we were to where we are, we're a civilian organization run by civilians, oftentimes our leadership is appointed, right. not necessarily homegrown or coming up through the ranks. And then most of our operations, with obviously with paramilitary operations aside, are civilian in nature, where DIA is a military-run, military-structured organization. 
Right. And if you look at the, the intelligence focus of the many different intelligence disciplines that the Defense Intelligence Agency focus on is responsible for collecting and providing to decision makers, human or clandestine intelligence is just, just part of that. And it, again, it's really focused on supporting the warfighter, uh, the regional commanders. And then there's a, also um, a portion that has to also go back to the senior leadership at the political level as well. You know, you raise a couple of really interesting points in just a few sentences, right? Different authorities, the authorities that the Defense Intelligence Agency has versus what the Central Intelligence Agency has. And it's really easy for us to compare that against what NSA has, what FBI has, right. what Border Patrol has. And then you also talk about support to the warfighter. And this is something that's also really interesting because in the, in the CIA, we only support war zones on a regional basis, not on a conflict basis. DIA is structured differently because wherever there's a conflict zone, you will find DIA. Right. And, and the real true intent was, can we have um, our intelligence capabilities more forward and more forward leaning so we can maybe predict instability in some regions or, or changes in the national security environment that we can prevent a conflict? Yeah. But if that's, we're unable to do that, if we're able to prevent or predict strategic surprise, then we, if we're unable to do that, we find ourselves forward deployed in that region, trying to, again, uh, determine what it is that our adversary is trying to accomplish so we can be one decision one step, step ahead. ahead. Exactly. Hopefully, that's that's the goal. That's the goal. So, I mean, I, I think all of this tells me that this is going to be a really interesting conversation. But I want to step us back and start someplace a little bit more personal because you know Everyday Spy. And I, I really appreciated your support for EverydaySpy.com. Well, and- I, I can't believe you asked me, you invited me. I feel, <laughs> I feel quite privileged. <laughs> so I'm really humbled by the support that you've given me. And you know that the platform is all about trying to break down the wall between espionage and everyday life. I've seen you do it in your own business. I've seen you do it in your own life. How you use espionage every day. So my first question to kind of kick us off is, what is it that you loved the most about working in espionage? It's so centered around people. It's a people skill. So if you look at to be real successful in human intelligence operations, clandestine operations to spot assess, you know, develop a source. It's all about understanding people and how you can help them. Mm. So I think that's lost many times. Most generally, everything we do in the clandestine service, working with a a potential source, it's host nation service. we really are trying to do what's best for the potential source, the host nation, and the U.S. as well. So it's nice to be able to kind of pull those together and help each other out. And I think it's kind of kind of gravitated me, and it's all based off a very personal relationship. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the personal relationship and how we're trying to help, because that's where the job is easiest, right? The good days at work were the days that I got to sit across from somebody who was trying to do, they thought they were doing the right thing, I thought they were doing the right thing, it was going to benefit their family, it was going to benefit the United States. But sometimes our work puts us in front of people who are just not good people. How did you manage those experiences? Well, those are more probably focused on trying to look at how do we handle potential connection to terrorist organizations. Yeah. And so to understand the intent of a terrorist organization, you kind of have to infiltrate it in some way somehow. And so those individuals, I think you can still boil it down to what is lacking in their life? What do they need? What is it that really motivates them? Some way, somehow, they decide to have a conversation with you. Right. And so you have to find out what it is that you can really come to some common ground and build a trust upon and promise. Something you can deliver. Something you have to be able to deliver. And it's actually usually ends up being a very positive outcome in the end. And you can also say that 
Those relationships are based off people that are very unhappy and have distrust in the organization they're involved in. Mm -hmm. And they can see that there is no positive outcome at all. Yeah. And you just take that and uh, expand upon it. Yeah, it's so right. I don't think that people understand that bad guys aren't happy to be bad guys. Generally speaking, there's so many organizations that recruit and build their base based off the disenfranchised, the unhappy, the weak, the tired, the, and the poor, hungry. the poverty-stricken, yeah. the, the uneducated. It's amazing. They're, they become a sort of prey yep. that villains just feed upon. Yeah, they, they manipulate and exploit uh, those that are vulnerable. With that said, out of that, those that are trying to exploit and those that are actually somewhat institutionalized can become very dangerous. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we're trying to prevent. Really, if we could back it up and say, let's prevent the, the opportunity for someone vulnerable to actually be associated with a group and organization that wants to exploit that. So this is, I think this is a, an awesome segue into a real world application. One of the things that I've really come to respect about you is that you know how to prioritize. You know how to prioritize your time. You know how to prioritize your effort. You know how to prioritize your money. You know how to prioritize your work. And even as right now, as you're walking us through this comparison of how you deal with human intelligence sources who are terrorists or proliferators or drug traffickers, there's a priority order to how you execute the operation. The first most important priority is to neutralize the immediate threat. If somebody is institutionalized, if somebody is a viable threat against American lives or American interests, that's priority one. And then after priority one is taken care of, then you start worrying about, okay, how do you disassemble the network? How do you undermine the ideology? How do you prevent future recruitment, right? Right. It's just, it goes from building that relationship, finding out what's lacking, and then how you can, again, uh, going back to your priorities, which is usually set by your boss. <laughs> so, so, so your boss um, sets those priorities, and uh, like anything else, there's limited resources. So you have limited time, limited resources to accomplish the priorities, and and together you you balance those um, and move forward to accomplish those in the most um, expeditious way possible with the the highest return on your investment of time. Now you've been the boss. You've been the boss of teams that have had global reach. Yeah. Yes. How did you prioritize? for your people. And did you find that they needed coaching in prioritization or did they come in fresh off the boat ready to prioritize? No, no I, I think a good organizational structure, um, if you look at Defense Intelligence Agency, part of the Department of Defense, there is usually a really solid uh, organizational structure that lays out priorities. And if you follow that um, and kind of uh, adjust it based off the operating environment, I think you're quite successful. And so, unfortunately, since before 2001, we, at this point, have had many opportunities to excel mm. in the Department of Defense to try to prevent, deter aggression, and the intelligence community try to understand and prevent uh, prevent strategic surprise. And so we've had ample opportunity to hone those skills. So the people aspect is what you love the most. The people aspect, not just engaging in the operation, but also in managing other officers who oh, are sure. on their own path. Yeah. And that, that's, that goes back to, I think, I believe in the intelligence community um, and specifically the Department of Defense uh, portion is that there's a real desire to mentor. Mm -hmm. and to, so to be successful in any organization, you need to have a solid mentor program. And I think the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, prioritizes that. And so that real mentoring and developing the next group 
of intelligence officers and leaders has been kind of instrumental in helping be effective. I am former military. I was actually trained at the farm mm -hmm. by a DIA officer and because the farm hosts CIA and DIA. And my lead mentor was a DIA, and he was awesome. He was an awesome guy. One of the things I appreciated about him was the fact that he was of a DIA military background, so he and I just kind of connected. Culturally, there's a major difference between how CIA and how DIA operate because of that military tradition, and mentoring is just one of those ways. Yeah, you can't underestimate the culture of even of these organizations inside the U.S. government all have subcultures. Mm -hmm. Department of Defense has its own subculture, and then intelligence and clandestine uh, intelligence within the Department of Defense has its own subculture. And that's very closely aligned to the CIA, but they are definitely distinct, different cultures. And some of that is part of just the education and training, and I, th I think really is a, is a, plays a large factor. Well, I also feel like on the leadership side of things, there's a phase-gate structured approach in the military. You know that you have to be a second lieutenant for two years before you can become a first lieutenant. Right. Yeah. You know that you have to be a first lieutenant for two years before you can become a captain. You know that after five years, you have to be assessed for whether or not you're ready to be promoted to major. There's this rigid structure. And it's a pyramid. The math does not work out. So all that started out yep. as a, is a year group. And not everyone that starts out that year in that same class it's can rise promote. to the, rank, the ranks. It's a pyramid. And so we need to be able to provide opportunity for young and eager officers. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not for everyone. Yeah. And then the system has to also help focus those that are going to want to remain and have the capabilities. And they'll hopefully rise to the top. And those that don't probably need to seek another career at, over time. This, this is one of those fantastically interesting areas. And I'm sorry if I'm boring anybody who's listening, talking about the career structure of CIA, right? But people don't understand. It's a pyramid. There's only one director. Right. When you go down from director to division and you go down from division to group, the 200 people that I went through the farm with, we're all, we all came in at whatever our hiring civilian scale was. We're not all going to make it. And even though there's, all, there's a home for all of us, we all have an assignment somewhere. Those assignments, when they dry up, what do you do with that officer? And as you look back at CIA over the last four years or so, you've seen the impact of unplanned attrition. We've had presidents pull us out of war zones. We've had presidents pull us out of conflict areas. We've had a reprioritization of budget. That's part of the pyramid. And those yes. officers have to go somewhere. I think it is a, it's a balance. And it's, it's, I think it's similar across any, uh, any government organization across the world. It's all, all the same. So there's so many billets, right? So many slots. And ultimately, we need to fill those. And we don't always fill them with the most capable. Where we try, we try to educate and mentor and train those to fill those positions. And then there's that group like yourself and others to decide, hey, I, I, I've learned something from here and I want to go take advantage of some of these skill sets. Yeah. How do we exponentially increase our impact? Yeah. How do we take the impact away from the structure? The DA is a perfect example. If you're, if you're a high-performing three-year captain, you know you're not going to make major until at least five years. So do you wait for two mm -hmm. years and then take your competitive promotion and then wait another seven years before you make lieutenant colonel? Like, what do you do? You have to make that decision at some point. It's the balance between where you feel you're being impactful mm -hmm. and where you see yourself in 20 years. And are you really happy with what you're doing? And I think probably more important than any of that is what about your family? Yeah. What are your family goals? And factor all that in, which is going back to working with people, being in the clandestine service, having that personal relationship with everybody. And 
same thing in, in the family as well. You have to kind of understand what the family goals are. And hopefully that fits in with your, your professional government career, your military career. And if it doesn't, then I, I think it's okay to choose another path. Now, the family transition is an interesting one for me too, because you have an interesting and unique family background. We come from a world where divorce is rampant, but you have not been divorced. You're 19, 19 years in? 19 years. So you've managed to maintain a healthy marriage. <laughs> it's Now, on the other side of it, You've also had that marriage without children. And a lot of the complication that does come from people being deployed and having to manage family is when you introduce children. So can you share a little bit about what it's been like to be married to the same woman in a healthy marriage mm-hmm. for 19 years without children while dragging her through yeah, this yeah. career? <laughs> extremely fortunate that I, I found a wife that could uh, put up with me. And I always tell everybody, you know, I, I married up in life. I married up. And so really, besides just serendipity, being the right place at the right time and finding the right woman, there are some things that kind of helped it, and that is just, from the very get-go, my wife is very supportive of my military career and very supportive transitioning into more of an intelligence focus. And that alone, I mean, that alone yeah. is super important because the sacrifice that any spouse makes when they marry a military person, male or female, that's not an easy contract to sign. Not, not at all. We, we totally underestimate that, the spouse and the children. You know, we often joke and kid that, reason we didn't have children is I was never home to be there to take care of the kids. <laughs> so therefore, she didn't really want to have any children. She just couldn't see herself, couldn't visualize the struggles that she had seen and the challenges. And so we just opted out not to have children. Um, and we played it, um, you know, looked at it you know, year by year. And then one day you wake up and you realize, well, you're a little older. And so may- maybe um, there's other things you can do besides having children for us. We chose to try to be maybe the best aunt and uncles, <laughs> to spoil our nieces and nephews. <laughs> Which, and that, if you way. spoil your nieces and nephews, you're not the best aunt and yeah. uncle. <laughs> aunt, best to the children, but not to the siblings. <laughs> so many times, yes, our siblings have forewarned us about what we can and cannot provide to the children, especially when they're young and it's lots of candy. You show up, you provide lots of candy, and then you leave a few hours later and let the you know then the parents have to deal with uh, the sugar rush. That's a terrible kind of covert <laughs> op right there. I mean, it is. I'm, well, I'm a trained professional. <laughs> <laughs> I, I served in Southeast Asia with a Korean linguist. Remind, you remind me of her story here. She was awesome. She was a really good friend of myself, of my wife, and she was you know, beautiful, talented, uh, amazing language capabilities. And she was married to the same man for their entire career. And she was constantly under demand. I mean, uh, anywhere that there were North Koreans, you need someone who can speak Korean. And there's not a lot of people who can speak uh, fluent Korean, fluent English at a professional level that can be converted into like an intelligence report. So she was hugely demanded. And just like you were explaining in your story, they never had children. And she used to tell me that every year they would have the conversation and every year the conversation would come up again and again. And then one day they just said, I don't think we can have children anymore. I think it would be potentially dangerous mm-hmm. and incredibly inconvenient to have a child now. And so they don't. So they don't have any children. And they just, they have made everything work in a, in a weird sort of way just by taking it one year at a time, just by checking in with each other you know, on that basis. Yeah, it, you, you have to 
early on kind of establish the roles and responsibilities and my wife is quite frank and truthful that she just could not see herself uh, with children and then the idea of me being gone so much really kind of reinforced that idea mm. for her so it never really became a real option if we started to have children now when I took my child to these sporting events the other kids would say hey you brought your grandpa with you <laughs> and I, I thought well I don't know if that's really fair to a child because um, I would potentially be the same age as the grandparents of, yeah. of, of that child Spying is a human business. It's not about guns, girls, or glory. All of that is just Hollywood doing what Hollywood does. Spying is about understanding what people need and then helping them achieve it. Viper put it perfectly. If you're going to go dedicate your life to something, to espionage or to business or to a career, whatever, then make it something that brings value to others. E.D. Viper spent the majority of his career away from his wife, away so often that they chose to put Viper's career ahead of building a family of their own. As a husband and father, that kind of commitment to keeping our country safe is absolutely humbling, and it speaks to priorities, Viper's priorities and my own priorities. But the value is asking you what you prioritize. How are you spending your resources, your time, and your money, and your energy? You have something you are trying to achieve, but have you prioritized it? Is anything else in your life getting more of your resources? If the answer is yes, that's okay, but I know what E.D. Viper would ask you. He would ask, how much longer before you prioritize yourself, Everyday Spy? Because that is Everyday Espionage. Everyday Espionage is dedicated to one thing, educating everyday people. I know that not everyone will listen, but those who listen will learn. If you learned something new today, click subscribe, review, and share the podcast with a friend. Find me on social media at Everyday Spy or on my website, everydayspy.com. If you are up for a special challenge, visit everydayspy.com forward slash operations and join me for an authentic spy training mission. And above all else, remember that knowledge is freedom.